go ahead and have a word of prayer, then we'll begin. Father, thank you again for this evening that we have to look at your word and this section of 1 Corinthians. Uh, we're thankful, Father, for our class and for those who have been faithfully attending. We think of uh, our good brothers, uh, Ron uh, Biggs and uh, Ken Rapp. Pray that they are, you'll continue to uh, work in their lives and and uh, re uh, administer to them the 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 help that they need, the medical help and and the, and the spiritual help in this very difficult time for their in their lives. And we pray that we'll be faithful to pray for them and for others uh, that we know of who are experiencing difficult times. So we pr ask your uh, guidance and direction, your blessing tonight, and we might be able to think clearly and rightly on these important issues in 1 Corinthians. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we're looking at um, chapter 10, chapter 10, verse 1. I don't know what page that is in your notes there, but 32, okay. So, um, so this is... Uh, the conclusion, 10, 1 through 22. And uh, remember I said last time that um, um, Paul, at the end of chapter 9, uh, spoke about the need to persevere in the faith, in good works and in faith. So remember, he's concerned about the behavior of the Corinthians because when Christians uh, have a pattern of sinful behavior, it can bring into question, it does bring into question uh, their salvation, their regeneration. And, uh, and so um, in 1 Corinthians 9, is a good, at the end is a good passage that Paul says we need to continue on, we need to persevere. He uses the uh, games metaphor to talk about the race and running the race and run so as to win the prize and so forth. So even though we're justified by grace through faith, we're secure, uh, that justification, that regeneration produces in us a change that, should, that does result in a changed life and so forth. And so um, Paul is concerned about the Corinthian behavior. Does it really reflect this changed life, this, this continuation in faith and good works? And so he has that example in chapter 9. Remember, his ultimate purpose is to forbid them from going to the temple, to these temples, these pagan temples. But now in chapter 10, he's going to have this conclusion, no going to temples, as I say. But he's going to give the example of Israel. He thinks back to the Old Testament here, and he sees in the example of Israel, their coming out of Egypt and their apostasy, as we call it here, the danger of apostasy, the fact that, that uh, you know, most of them didn't go into the promised land. They, they died in the desert. Uh, they didn't believe God and so forth. Uh, their sinfulness, their sinful behavior. There's a lot of verses there in Exodus that are parallel to the Corinthian situation. And Paul's going to use those verses 
to, to warn them. So that's what the Bible does. It warns us, even though we're justified by faith and, and on the one hand we have all these verses about our security, it warns us about our behavior. It warns us that uh, once saved, always saved does not mean you can just live a very sinful life and have that hope of heaven. So the Bible is filled with warnings, and this is a warning that we're going to see here in chapter 10, that uh, Israel is a, an example of, of, of a people that went wrong. And uh, so we'll see how that works in the life of the Corinthians. And so last time we started that, uh, looking at the example of Israel, the danger of apostasy and so forth, and now we're stopped right at chapter 10, verse 1. And Paul says there, For I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And I say here, the word for that begins this chapter indicates Paul is giving an explanation or further clarification from the preceding chapter where he spoke using himself an example of a possibility of disqualification for the prize. So the Corinthians are to run the Christian life, the Christian life like a race, as those who are intent on winning the race, finishing the race. And so that means we have to exercise self-control in all things, lest we be, what Paul said, disqualified from the race. For he now goes on to explain, he says, Scripture gives us some examples of people who did not exercise self-control, in the matter of idolatry. <clears throat> so Israel did not exercise self-control in the matter of idolatry, and they failed to gain the prize. They didn't go into the promised land. And I say here in the discussion that follows, Paul relates Israel's crossing of the Red Sea and their being sustained by manna and water from the rock as sort of analogous to Christian baptism and the Lord's Supper. So it's kind of an analogy, an illustration. Paul, uh, uh, Paul, but in spite of Israel's privilege, Paul concludes that the majority fell under the God's judgment in the desert. <clears throat> so Paul's point seems to be here that Israel sort of foreshadows us as Christians uh, when it comes to the experience of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Um, and, and so uh, be sure, because Israel sort of foreshadows us that is, there are things in their life and their existence that are similar to our Christian privileges. They had Christian privileges. Uh, they had this manna and they had this water from the rock. They had these privileges and uh, they fell under God's judgment. So be sure that you have these things that you don't uh, do the same thing they did. You, that, that you don't follow their example and have this subsequent judgment. I say here, Paul begins his discussion by noting that, that all were under the cloud and that all passed through the sea. And this is from Exodus 14. Uh, the angel of the Lord who had been traveling in front of Israel's army withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought the darkness to one side 
and the light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night God, the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it to the dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea to dry ground. So you have those emphases on the cloud and the sea here. Uh, so they had an experience with the cloud and the sea. I say here the point seems to be that just as the Corinthians' life began with baptism, uh, so Israel's deliverance from Egypt began with a kind of baptism. This is just an analogy. <laughs> but, you know, they went through the Red Sea. They had this, that was their initial experience of coming out of Egypt. Uh, you know, it was kind of like what you, you had an initial experience like they had. Um, but as I say, Paul will go on to say that that didn't keep them from falling into idolatry and thus falling short of the prize. Remember, I said that one possibility is that the Corinthians may have sort of a magical view of the ordinances. Many commentators think that. It seems possible that they thought, well, and, you know, like I told you, a lot of times a day people will put their trust in a decision they made. You know, well, I trusted Christ when I was 12 years old, and so, you know, I'm good, you know. And so it could be that they were saying, well, we've been baptized. You know, we take the Lord's Supper. We, you know, um, you know, it's pretty much what Roman Catholics do. They, they trust in the fact that, uh, you know, they go to Mass and, and uh, you know, they, they, they follow those sacraments and so forth. And live like a devil, <laughs> you know. I mean, you know, it's not all Catholics, but I'm just saying some live pretty wretched lives that I've known, and yet they go to mass, and they come out of mass, and their language is like the gutter, you know. Um, so it's it's a rather strange thing, but they feel like, well, you know, they're told as long as they confess their you know their sins and so forth, and they're in good shape, you know. So. Uh, it's possible that the, the Corinthians uh, had that same view. I said the language baptized into Moses should not be pressed to mean actual baptism. They were baptized into Moses. Remember, Christian baptism is an identification with Christ, the church's deliverer. So Israel, Moses was Israel's deliverer. So baptized, you know, means to be identified, to be, you know, you're immersed, you're identified with. So they were baptized, they were identified into Moses, they had kind of a baptism, they went through the sea and so forth. Um, this language about the cloud and the sea seems to be rather incidental to, to Paul's point. Every time you see this, this experience discussed in the Old Testament, there's always this reference to the cloud and the sea, the cloud and the sea, like Nehemiah. You divide the sea pillar of cloud, they divide the sea, the cloud, cloud and sea kind of go together, so they're just sort of mentioned together. Um, verse 3, they all ate the same spiritual food, they drank the same spiritual drink. In the same way as the previous reference to baptism, Paul now describes Israel's experience of the miraculous bread and the miraculous drinking of water from the rock. Remember, this is chapter 16, and uh, the, 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 the miraculous bread, the manna, remember? that uh, I won't read all that, but I'm sure you know what I'm talking about there, the story of the raining down of the bread, you know, from heaven, six days 
a week for them and a double portion uh, the day before the Sabbath. Uh, they also had the, the water from the rock, you know. They said, give us water to drink. And Moses uh, said, why do you quarrel with me? And the Lord said, uh, go out in front of the people to take with you some of the elders. Uh, strike the rock, you know, and uh, this rock at Horeb, and then the water will come out of it and the people will drink. So, um, so they ate this, you know, Paul says they had this spiritual food and they had this drink. You have this food, the, you know, the, the bread and, and the drink, you know, the, the, uh, the juice and so forth. Um, so it's, it's kind of an analogy there. Uh, when Paul uses this term spiritual, they had the same spiritual food. Uh, spiritual here means just supernaturally given. They ate this something that was supernaturally beginning. This word pneumatikos means... Uh, Paul says, we know that the law is spiritual. It's something that's given by God. It's supernaturally, it was given uh, by God to the people. It came from God, who is the Spirit. Uh, the food was not you know, figurative or allegorical. It's real. It's real food, but it's from God. It's spiritual in the sense that it's from God. Um, but its real significance uh, went beyond this mere physical as verse 4 will explain here. Verse 4 says, For they drank, 4b, from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. I say Paul reinforces the fact that the Israelites received spiritual food and drink by interpreting their experience of water from the rock as being connected with Christ. But by connecting the rock with Christ probably, probably intends to indicate how guilty Israel was. They rejected Christ Himself and they're following after idols. Uh, so uh, remember 1 Corinthians 2, uh, 10, 9 will say, you should not test Christ as some of them did. He'll say, and kill by snakes. 10, 22, are you, are you trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy and so forth? So um, I say here the... the, the um, um, the rock is called spiritual in the sense just described as being from God, supernaturally given by God. And Paul says it was ultimately the pre-existent Christ who was sustaining them. The incident with the rock is described in Exodus 17. Remember, we just read that and so forth, um, where Moses struck the rock and so forth. Water came out. Uh, another incident uh, happened in uh, uh, Numbers 20. Um, so Paul identifies this rock with Christ. He's emphasizing here this analogy of Israel's experience with the Corinthians' experience. They're both nourished by Christ. They're nourished by God in the Old Testament, nourished by Christ. Um, there's a continuity here between Israel and, and the Corinthians. Um, so there's this similarity. They have this the Corinthians are, are engaging in idolatry, and the Corinthian and the Israelites, um, they are. We'll see. We'll see they're engaging in idolatry. Verse ten, verse five. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. So in verse five, Paul draws a strong contrast to what he said in verses one through four. 
Nevertheless, Paul concludes that despite the Israelites' spiritual blessed privileges that was similar in many ways to the Corinthians, they had this food, they had this baptism, they had this water, they had this manna, including the presence of Christ himself to nourish them with spiritual drink, they failed to obtain the prize. So Paul is setting here in motion uh, this next section in which he will specify for the reasons for Israel's failure. And that was a failure of idolatry, very you know, like the Corinthians are engaging in. About Israel, Paul says, God was not pleased with most of them, as is evidenced by the fact their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. All of them had experienced a kind of baptism. They went through the Red Sea. They had a kind of Lord's Supper. They, you know, they ate that food. They drank that water from the rock. They had these privileges. Yet the vast majority of them experienced God's judgment and failed to gain the prize. So the point is, you Corinthians had better take heed, which is Paul's point in, in the next verses. He'll say, you better take heed. Uh, just as God did not tolerate Israel's idolatry, he will not tolerate the Corinthians. So here we have the application in verse uh, 10, 6 of the example of Israel. This section continues the narration of the events of Exodus by explaining that the reason for the review is to warn the Corinthians. They enjoy blessings, as I've said, similar to, to those of Israel. And because of idolatry, they are in danger of judgment, just like Israel did. Um, so this section offers some specific reasons for the judgment. Notice verse 6. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. So this verse ties the examples that will follow to the Old Testament analogies that just preceded. Now these things occurred as examples refers to verses 1 through 5. Their purpose was to keep us from our, keep our hearts on evil, keep us from keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. So what happened to Israel is set forth in the verses which follow here in verse 6. These things refer to the two concerns of verses 1 through 5. On the one hand, Israel had spiritual privileges comparable to those of the Corinthians. On the other hand, most of them fell under God's judgment in the desert and thus failed to obtain their form of the eschatological prize. So the verses that follow are going to give four examples four examples of how privileged Israel set their hearts on evil things. Remember, they set their hearts on evil things and therefore they went into idolatry, they, they uh, fell in the desert, they didn't reach the promised land, they didn't reach the eschatological prize, the future prize. And so the common example in each one of these examples he's going to give is, common factor is that their bodies were scattered in the desert that we saw in verse 5. Now what's kind of amazing every time I think about this passage is the details that Paul will discuss here from the Old Testament. He discusses very minute details. And I still wonder about that to this day because the Corinthians are a bunch of Gentiles and yet they seem to be quite familiar with the Old Testament, which is, I still haven't quite figured that out in my own mind. Here are these Gentiles living in Corinth. And now there's a synagogue there, obviously, but still, <laughs> you know, uh, Paul must have communicated a lot about the Old Testament very quickly. 
to, to people, more than we think of, because you'll see here, he just, he, he, he draws some conclusions from just little snippets of verses. Let's look at that. It's very interesting here. He says, don't be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Paul begins, do not be idolaters as some of them were. One might argue that this is a general exhortation against idolatry. Were it not for the text that Paul chooses to cite, he cites Exodus 32.6b. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Um, I say more specifically, related to idolatry per se, would be Exodus 32.6a. The people rose early and burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. So he's citing Exodus 32, and Exodus 32 talks about the idolatry. The verse, first part of verse 6 says, The people the next day, so the next day the people rose up early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. This is in front of the golden calf. So they're offering these offerings. But Paul didn't cite that. He cites, Afterward they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry here. The people sat down. That's the part he cites. Uh, Instead, Paul chooses to cite that portion of the narrative which specifically indicates the people ate in the presence of the golden calf. See, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Um, so this points, uh, see, this is how this points to what the Corinthians are doing. What are they doing? They're going to the temple and eating meals at the temple. They're eating this idle meat. It's more than just idolatry. Paul specifically picks up that, um, that particular verse uh, because he, um, he, uh, he wants to emphasize this eating in the presence of the golden calf. Um, if we look here at you know, a verse like 8.10, if someone with a weak conscience, remember, sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple... Remember, that's what we're talking about here. The Corinthians were going to these meals in the idol temple, which involved idolatry. And that's what the Israelites were doing in front of the golden calf. They were, they were offering sacrifices, that's true, but they were eating and drinking and then getting up to indulge in revelry. So the judgment in the case of Israel was the slaying of 3,000 by the Levites. And... Uh, a subsequent plague, you remember, came upon them. And so this is the first example of verse 5. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Verse 8. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. Paul now gives his second example. Not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. The example is also specifically related to the Corinthian situation. In this case... Their problems with sexual immorality. We saw that in chapter 5, chapter 6. Apparently, the feasting of the Corinthians in the idol temples also at times involves sexual play. Now, we know that's true in Corinth. 
The Old Testament that Paul refers to is probably this Numbers 25. Israel, while Israel was in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual morality with the Moabite women who invited them to sacrifice to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal. Say Again, it's, this is all very similar to what the Corinthians are, going, are doing. They're going to these temples and, and, and they are engaging in idolatry. They're eating these meals and there's sexual immorality going on also. Uh, verse 9, we should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by the snakes. The third example, we should not test Christ as some of them were killed by the snakes, refers to Israel's complaint in Numbers 21. Remember they traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, but the people drew impatient. They spoke against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread, there's no water. We detest this miserable food. And the Lord sent these snakes among the venomous snakes, and they bit the people, so forth. Um, so that's this example. We should not test Christ, and some of them were killed by snakes. Uh, they spoke against Moses and so forth about the manna and so forth. Paul adapts this illustration to the Corinthians' present conflict with him over the right to attend cultic meals in the pagan temples. So Paul is purposely trying, uh, tying the situation of Israel and Corinth together. Um, it was ultimately Christ that Israel was testing in the desert. And it's Christ that they are putting to the test by trying to eat both at His table, the Lord's table, in the church and at the table of demons, as we'll see. Verse 10, And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. The last example was probably prompted by the previous one in which Paul complained against both God and Moses. The people complained against both God and Moses. The image of grumbling characterizes the whole experience of Israel. Remember, they did a lot of that. Uh, they quarreled with Moses. They grumbled against him. Exodus 17, Numbers 11. Uh, they were upset about their hardships and so forth like that. Um, uh, so uh, they're grumbling about the food, kindled God's anger against them, as we saw um, in, in um, Exodus 12 here, 23. Um, so Paul is bringing these examples up and, you know, again, it's interesting that he sort of ex obviously expects them to be knowledgeable about these events, you know, that they are familiar with these events that happened to Israel. Uh, so he must have talked about this before. Maybe, you know, maybe he talked about it when he was there. Remember, I said this problem of the Corinthians going to the idol temples was probably a problem when Paul first started the church. You know, he starts the church, and he's right away, he's got to confront the idolatry, right away. Then he writes that first letter, and he talks about the idolatry. So this is a, a continuing problem that he's, he's dealing with, with the Corinthians. Verse 11, these things happen to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on which the culmination of the ages has come. 
Paul concludes the four examples of judgment in the desert with a very direct application. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. The, these accounts of Israel should serve as a cautionary tale, as cautionary tales for the Corinthians. Warnings are a means God uses to bring about our spiritual maturity. The Old Testament is not simply interesting ancient history, it's God's history of redemption, which is relevant, re, relevant to those on whom the culmination of the ages has come. The final clause on whom the culmination of the ages is coming indicates that through His death and resurrection, Jesus Christ marks the turning of the age of the old is on its way out. The new age has begun. You remember 2 Corinthians 5.17. So the coming of Christ uh, and the beginning of the church age, of course, uh, set the future in motion. We're moving toward now the very consummation of the age. All of history is moving toward this culmination, this goal, Christ's return and so forth. Uh, Verse 12, so if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. The so indicates that Paul is bringing his review of Israel history to a conclusion by directly applying these warnings to the Corinthian situation. Those who think they are standing firm, refers back to verses 1 through 4, to those who possibly think that participation in the Corinthian ordinance has placed them above danger in regard to attending the cultic temple meals, especially since they also have argued that such gods do not exist. The warning which began with the analogies of 9, 24 through 27 is that they too might fall just as the Israelites who had their own form of ordinances. These mean, this means that the Corinthians might also, as Israel, fail to win the eschatological prize, in this case, eternal salvation. So as I've said a hundred times already, Though a, a, a Christian cannot f- fall, we, a true Christian cannot fail of their salvation. A true Christian cannot fail of their salvation. Uh, not all Corinthians were necessarily true Christians. Not all were necessarily genuine. And, uh, you know, whenever, as I said, whenever Christians are acting contrary uh, to the commands of Christ, it's possible that they may only be professors and not genuine possessors of God's grace. So the Bible's filled with warnings uh, to Christians so that we can examine ourselves uh, to make sure that we're not deceiving ourselves. And that's that verse, we'll remember I've mentioned several times, examine yourself, see whether you're in the faith, test yourselves. Do not realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless, of course, you fail the test. So this is a hard problem for pastors to deal with here because you have some people in the pew, are, they just have so, they're so sensitive. They think any little sin, any little, any, I, did, I did this, how could I be a Christian, you know? I had this thought, how can I be, you know, they, they overdo it. Then there's just these people who can do about anything. Oh, I'm good, you know. I'm <laughs> so, you know, there's a balance here, you know. You know, we have to, each person has to be treated individually. You know, some people need a strong warning because they're acting very sinfully and it doesn't seem to bother them. It doesn't seem to affect their, 
their situation. They don't seem to react. They don't, they're not concerned about it. And other people uh, you know, are a little too sensitive about these kinds of things. So it's a difficult problem to sometimes navigate. Um, people will often come you know, and, and they, they have problems with assurance because uh, they're concerned about sins they commit you know, they, and so forth, and that, that's an issue here. But we can't do away with the fact that there are warnings to warn us that we should be concerned about our sinful behavior. You know, it's not something to be taken lightly. We need to think carefully about that and uh, not just continue in sin, a practice of sin. I say here the danger for the Corinthians is that they are placing themselves in this jeopardy through idolatry. In the next section, Paul will come right out and prohibit idolatry in which they are engaged in the strongest possible terms. But before he does that, he doesn't want to leave the impression that the Corinthians have no hope for them. There is no hope for them. So he transitions to the next section with a word of encouragement. So the point is, as I've said, that... Um, when a person goes headlong into this kind of sin, unrepentant idolatry like this is, you know, that's very dangerous. But that should not, that, that you know, we have to be careful about, we want to let people know that those who are struggling with sin, struggling with a sin or something, that... Uh, God will give them grace. God, God has, uh, and he's sitting those verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except which is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. So I say this verse is a transition between the present section and what follows. On the one hand, it's a continuation of the warning of verses 1 through 12. On the other hand, it serves as a word of assurance leading up to the prohibition to flee from idolatry in verse 14. Paul seems to be saying to his Corinthian friends that there is no risk of them falling, that is, failing to win the eschatological prize, as long as we're dealing with the ordinary trials of the Christian life. God will help them through those that are common to mankind, but they must therefore flee from idolatry. The clear implication of what Paul is saying is that one cannot expect divine aid when one is testing Christ in the way the Corinthians were currently doing. So, as I said, when a believer you know, deliberately and persistently lives in direct disobedience to the commands of God, one cannot expect to be delivered from the inevitable consequences of one's sin. But Paul reinsures his friends, his Corinthians, that they're not going to fall if we're talking about normal difficulties of the Christian life, the trials and temptations that are common to all of us. God has committed himself to us when it comes to these ordinary things of life. We can expect his help. Paul first says, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. The noun translated temptation and the verb tempted can have either the meaning of temptation 
that is an enticement to sin, or they may refer to what is often called a trial, an outward test. So an enticement to sin is an attraction to sin. Uh, it might come through something we hear or something we see. It might come through a person or a thing. Whereas a trial could be just a difficult circumstance, something that just overtakes us, such as a serious illness or maybe the loss of a job, you know, something like that. Now, in the original Greek, there's only one word for both of these ideas. That is, one word that means, that has this idea of trial and temptation. You have to look at context to see exactly what's going on. Uh, I say here, these two different meanings are most clearly seen in James chapter 1. We are told, consider it pure joy... Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Then in verse 13 we read, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Now in those cases, it's the same Greek word. Translated trial. Translated temptation in verse 13. James is saying that God does not tempt us in the sense of enticing us to sin. God does not tempt us, verse 13, in the case of enticing us to sin. But He does send various trials our way, verse 2, uh, in order to mature us. You know, in fact, our whole earthly life after we come to Christ is one great trial. We know this world is not our home. We, we lament the fact that we live in a sin-cursed world, riddled with disease, death, stresses, distress. But for the growing of Christian character, for, for holiness, this is a good training ground. This is what God has designed for us to mature us, even though it seems rather difficult at times. So... Both these temptations and the trials are part of God's plan for us to grow us, to mature us. Um, now these trials I'm talking about are not like major tragedies. They're just choices between good and evil that we face, you know, every constantly have to make. I say here, in reality, temptations and trials are two sides of the same coin. They always go together. They're really inseparable. Every temptation is ultimately a trial, and every trial brings a temptation. So every temptation is ultimately a trial, and every trial brings a temptation. For proof, we could look no further than temptation of Christ in the desert. Matthew 4, 1 says, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Same word as we have here. From Satan's perspective, this was a temptation to get Jesus to sin, but from God's perspective, remember, Jesus was led by the Spirit into this encounter with Satan. From God's perspective, it was a trial, an opportunity to demonstrate His Son's holy character. So God can send a trial for the purpose of strengthening us for our own spiritual maturity, ultimately, 
And every trial is ultimately for our good, is ultimately for God's glory. But within every trial that we face, there's always the temptation to sin by responding in disobedience. So every trial has within it the has a temptation to sin, to disobey God. Uh, so from God's perspective, it's it's you know it's a uh, it's an opportunity, it's an event designed for our good, something that can ultimately mature us. Um, that's why James could say, you remember here, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. So, um, Paul is saying here is God's not going to allow a temptation or a trial that doesn't have the possibility of moving us towards Christ's likeness. He's saying God doesn't tempt us in order to get us to sin. I say here, these kinds of trials and temptations that Paul says the Corinthians can expect deliverance from are those common to mankind, the common ordinary ones of this life. This is expressed by the phrase common to mankind and the verb overtaken. That is, in the normal course of life, these trials and temptations simply overtake us. However, God does not promise deliverance when we knowingly rush headlong into sin as the Corinthians were doing by attending meals in the pagans' temples. Pagan temples. There's a difference between true testing and those who test God. So by persistently attending these cultic meals uh, that Paul had warned them against, you know, the Corinthians, you know, are testing God. They're putting themselves in danger of falling. Um, but, you know, this temptation is not such that they have to succumb to it. They, they don't have to. But if they do, if they keep on doing this, then that's very dangerous. I say here the divine alternative to succumbing to temptation that Paul offers is to remind the Corinthians of God's prior faithfulness on their behalf. When it comes to the trials common to this human life, God is faithful. He can be counted on to help them, and in these and this in two ways. First, God is pledged He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. In other words, temptation is not irresistible. We may feel it's irresistible, but it's not. doesn't mean it's harmless or easy to resist, but only that temptation can be resisted. So when we fail, when we fall and succumb to temptation, it's not God's fault. Remember James uh, 1.13, he said, uh, God does not tempt anyone to sin. So God may bring this trial, but it's not the ultimate purpose is to get us to sin. Um, so we, no matter how severe the temptation is, we have to remember God is faithful. And He's promised to limit the temptation to that which we can bear at the time. Whatever, whatever place we are in our Christian lives. Second, I say here, when we are tempted, God will also provide a way out so you can endure it. This sounds like a contradiction in terms. Provide a way out so that you can endure it. 
There is a way out or into whatever temptation or trial we may undergo, but that has to be seen from the divine perspective. God has a way out so that one will not fall, but it's often a complete, not a complete escape from the experience itself. God's way out often requires a period of endurance on our part. Uh, sometimes God's way out may not seem like a, a way out at all. Uh, God may simply give us grace to endure what seems to be a continuing temptation or trial. Uh, remember um, Paul's experience. Even if I should continue to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain so so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say because of these surpassing great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away, but he said to me, No, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So sometimes God's way out is not a deliverance from the thing as it was here for Paul. He didn't experience this deliverance, <laughs> um, he had to endure it. God gave him grace to endure it. I remember when I was in seminary, I used to, when I'd go to work, we had a couple of radio stations there in Chattanooga, and I would listen to Jimmy Swaggart. Remember Jimmy Swaggart? <laughs> he had this 15-minute radio program. You know, and Okay, I'll try to say something good about Jimmy Swaggart. <laughs> but he would try to, he would have a passage, he would try to interpret it, you know, he would try to understand it and so forth. And, you know, it seemed genuine, he was trying to understand. He got to this passage here, you know, what do you do when you're here, you know? Well, his answer was, Paul just didn't have the faith to be healed. That's it. <laughs> Paul just lacked faith, you know, if he'd had the faith, <clears throat> because, you know, that's what they believe. You know, if you, your lack of healing is due to a lack of faith, and that was his answer to this particular verse is Paul just didn't have the faith, unfortunately, to do this. No, that's, uh, that's what happens sometimes. We have to uh, count on God's grace to endure what uh, God brings into our lives. Um. And as we saw, James 1.12 says, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. It doesn't say, Blessed is the one who resists a trial. It doesn't resist a trial. Blessed is the one who perseveres under a trial. So Paul's point again is that under ordinary human trials, temptations, God will give us grace to bring us through and so forth. But you can't just go headlong into sin. You can't just totally go against the commands of God and rush into sin and say, I don't care. And I've met people like that. I've met Christians, who's, professing Christians who said, I don't care what the Bible says. I'm going to do this. I've met people who said, I just don't care professing Christians. That's dangerous. That's very, very dangerous to say that kind of thing. 
Um, so the way out here, you know, is to flee idolatry, as we'll see. Uh, the Corinthians are not looking for a way out, unfortunately. They're looking for a way in. They're looking for a way to continue to go to the temples and engage in this idolatry. Well, Paul f finally then gets to it, the prohibition. And this section brings to an end Paul's extended argument with the Corinthians that began in 8.1 and that concerned their going to the temple feast. Paul now finally asserts an absolute prohibition against idolatry in verse 14. And Paul will give two reasons for his prohibition. One is he understands um, the Lord's Supper, this meal, as a sharing. Um, he understands when you're having a meal in the temple, you're having fellowship or you're sharing with this idol. Um, you know, when we have the Lord's Supper, Christ, we have, we, Christ is present with us. And when you went to the idol temple, you had this meal. It was assumed that God was with you. God was, your, His presence was with you there. Second, his, his reason is that he understands from the Old Testament that demons are behind idolatry. Verse 14, therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. That's the logical conclusion, therefore, of all that Paul has previously said. Paul uses the language of a tender appeal, my dear friends, but this is a prohibition, pure and simple. Um, so, I mean, this is an appropriate one following verse 13. God will provide a way through genuine trials, but God, that doesn't include people who are rushing headlong into idolatry or just saying, I don't care, we're going. Verse 15, I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. There can be no doubt that Paul's prohibition is 14 is absolute. Now Paul will seek to show the Corinthians how sensible it is based on their knowledge of the Lord's table. I mean, they, they, they pride themselves on being knowledgeable, so Paul appeals to that. I speak to knowledgeable, sensible people. Listen to what I'm going to say. Verse 16, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Along with uh, chapter 11, verses 17 through 34, this is one of the two passages where Paul refers to the Lord's Supper. However, we should note that here in chapter 10, the ordinance is not the focus of Paul's concern. The pagan meals addressed in verses 19 through 21 are. This passage serves as the basis for what Paul will say in 19 through 21. That is, he's alluding to it here. Um, that they're both a kind of a sharing, but the Lord's Supper is a participation in the blood of Christ. Um, so on the basis of the Corinthians' uh, probably common understanding of the nature of the Lord's Supper 
as well as their understanding of Israel's uh, eating part of the sacrifice um, Paul um, appeals to their common sense here uh, that this, this is why you shouldn't attend these pagan temples that when you have these meals there's a participation a you've heard that word coin on it well here it is basically what Paul argues is that there is something inherent in the nature of the Lord's Supper that makes participation and the other sacred meals absolutely incompatible. The Lord's Supper is a koinonia, which means a fellowship. It's translated a participation in verse 16. Uh, it's not the bread we break, a, koinonia, a participation, a sharing, a fellowship. So the Lord's Supper is a koinonia, which means... Uh, it makes participation in the sacred meals absolutely incompatible. Um, the Lord's Supper is a koinonia, which means a fellowship or participation in something. Paul's point or emphasis is that in sacred meals, pagan or Christian, one has koinonia, fellowship with fellow participants and with the deity during the meal as they worship the deity. And they understand that. That's the point. They understand that when they went to these pagan meals, they were communing with a god. That's what they, they, they understood that from their background. So it's easy for them to see the Lord's Supper as that kind of thing. And Paul's going to say, well, these aren't compatible. Uh, I mean, the early church clearly understood Jesus to be present at these, you know, at the, you know, um, at the meetings of the church by means of the Holy Spirit. Remember back in chapter 5 when he was talking about disciplining this man for incest? you remember that incident? Um, for my part, even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As the one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of the Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this, who has been doing this. So when you're assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day. So uh, clearly they understood that uh, uh, you know, Christ is present. God is present at these meetings. They're having the, the communion. They're having the Lord's Supper. Um, so this unique fellowship or this relationship is going to make it impossible to have communion with demons. Verse 17, uh, because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. I've said that koinonia refers to the common sharing in the Lord's Supper that binds the Corinthians together as the people of God. That experience makes all other meals idolatry. Paul's point in this verse is the solidarity of, the, of, of believers um, as one body that forbids all such unions. And so he's going to make this analogy uh, using, he's going to make this point by using the analogy of the bread. There is one loaf, he says. The phrase because there is one loaf looks back to the final words of verse 16. 
and is not the bread that we break our participation in the body of Christ. Um, so the phrase looks back there, when Christians take the Lord's Supper, they all share a common loaf, which the Lord had identified as his body. Paul now asserts that the body in that identification is to be understood analogically as the church, who even though they are many, are one body because there is one loaf at the table. Apparently they had one common loaf <laughs> at the table. Are we doing it uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, we'd have to have a big loaf, wouldn't we? To, <laughs> to have it, you know. Uh, then Paul adds uh, an explanatory four, for we all share the one loaf. By common to participation in this single loaf, the body of Christ, believers affirm that they together make up the body of Christ, which in turn implies that they may not likewise become partners in similar associations that honor demons. And he's going to explain that now as we go along here. And so now he's going to give the example of Israel here. Consider the people of Israel... Uh, do, not, do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar. But I'm going to stop here for tonight uh, because I want to uh, be able to take this next section here as, as a whole. So I won't try to get halfway into it and get there. So thank you for being with us. And we will stop there. And we will... Should be able to finish up maybe, well, hopefully chapter 10 um, next time, and then we'll get into the problem of hair. <laughs> Long hair. <laughs> you be gone? Okay. Well, that's too bad because. <laughs> uh huh?